Uh, good, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name's Alex Philp, and I'm the Director of Overseas Collections and Metadata Management here at the Library. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Gambri and Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, and I'd like to pay respects to their elders, past and present. I'm um, lucky enough to live at the foot of Mount Ainsley, just over the lake there, and when my shoddy knees allow, I like to walk up Mount Ainsley on the weekends. There are a number of scarred trees and ceremonial sites in the Mount Ainsley Reserve, and those are a physical reminder for, for me of the continuing stewardship of this beautiful land of the Aboriginal people. Look, it's an absolute delight for me to introduce this Creative Arts Fellow presentation, Love, Loss and the Last Days of Rangoon. I've introduced an, quite a number of these over the years, and this is absolutely the most intoxicating title of any of them. <laughs> Dr Michelle Ong Thin is the 2017 Creative Arts Fellow for Australian Writing, supported by the Ray Matthew and Eva Colesman Trust. Dr Ong Thin is a novelist, essayist and academic and is a lecturer at the College of Design and Social Context at RMIT. Did I get that bit right? Yes. Very good, very good. Her first novel in 2011, The Monsoon Bride, was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. During her fellowship here at the Library, Michelle has been primarily examining the personal papers in the Gordon Luce collection to help her recreate the cross-cultural, cosmopolitan, colonial city of Rangoon. Before she came to the Library, she had already consulted official archives in Myanmar, the Library of Congress and at the British Library, but came to this Library seeking a more personal stance of a foreigner who made Burma home, as did Gordon Luce. Michelle will talk a bit more about the Luce collection during her, her presentation, so I won't go into that right now. But before I introduce her, let me do a little brag about the wonderful collecting program covering Myanmar we do here at the National Library. The, the Library collects and provides access to a really wide range of materials from Myanmar, and we're really proud to do so. We think this kind of collecting makes a really significant contribution to Australia and to our collective understanding of our region. It's a small but significant way we're building our library's collection and it helps fulfil our mandate, which is to develop a national collection of library material. The Burmese collection is, uh, it consists of over 3,000 books and 125 serial titles. And that's, um, when I started in this job, I would have had no idea, but that's, that's quite a large amount. Most of the collection dates back to the 1950s. It includes work on economics, education, history, ethnography, language and medicine. And there are also many works on Burmese culture and religion and literature. Now, the library's longest-serving director-general, Sir Harold White, had a fearsome reputation for getting his own way. He visited Gordon Luce in Rangoon in 1963 and expressed an interest in acquiring his personal collection. He wasn't able to persuade Gordon Luce at that time. And, but, however, we did eventually manage to acquire the collection in 1980, after Luce died a year earlier and ten years after Sir Harold White had retired. Sir Harold was a visionary in many ways, but I wonder if even he would have seen that this, that this Luce collection would be the spur for this Creative Arts Fellowship in writing. While we've got no idea if he did foresee that or not, I'm very glad he put in that effort to visit the family in Rangoon in 1963 
and I'm sure we're all looking forward to hearing Michelle give her presentation about the collection. Please welcome Dr. Michelle Ongthin. Change into my reading glasses. Well, as um, Alex said, my name's Michelle Ongthin, and I'm the Creative Writing Fellow for 2017. And tonight I'm going to talk to you a bit about the project that I've been working on that I've used the Loose Collection to develop. It's a novel, and it's um, set in Rangoon. Um, in the promo for this, I noticed that Robin Holmes, who's not here tonight, mentioned that I'd be discussing my creative process, and I kind of laughed and sort of was terrified at the same time because um, this is my son, <laughs> and uh, when I was working on my first book, I used to work in our kitchen table, and um, you know I would work during the day, and uh, he would. And then I would wait until he came home from school and pick him up. And then sometimes if I was, you know, on a deadline or something or on a roll, I'd go back to work. And one day he was sort of standing there watching me. And I said, yeah, what do you want? You know, I was busy. And uh, he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm writing. And he goes, really? Because it looks like you're just staring into space and talking to yourself. <laughs> and actually, that is the creative process. It's staring into space and talking to myself. And I'm kind of staring into space now, and I'm kind of talking, and you're listening, but it does feel a bit like I'm, you know, <laughs> going on a bit. So this could be a little bit weird, but hopefully not too, not too strange. <coughs> So the creative process, um, the work that I did with the Loose Collection, I wanted to um, discuss first, before I go into that, um, a little bit of the history of Rangoon and um, Burma so I could kind of orient you in what I'm going to talk about. And I felt that the best way to do this was probably to show you this photograph. Um, this is the Secretariat, and it's right in the center of Rangoon, or Yangon as it's now called, and it takes up this massive space, several acres. And it's um, this heavy brick red Build, um, series of buildings, and it was built by the British not long after they annexed Burma in the late 19th century, um, and that was when Burma not only became a colony but a province of India. Um, the royal family had been exiled, and um, the Burmese had kind of been humiliated, and this was really very much a symbol of um, colonial power. Um, Mandalay had been the center, and Rangoon was where um, activity had shifted. And so for me... I sort of still feel that kind of tension when I sort of see this building. But of course, as you see now, it's quite decayed. In 1941, the Japanese declared war on America and um, Great Britain, and the Secretariat was abandoned. Um, all the government records that had been there were loaded onto a train bound for Shimla, which is a hill station in India, and the site of the temporary Burmese capital, and then they got lost en route. Um, the rumor is that they were mistakenly rede redirected to a shunting yard somewhere. So there was the empty... Um, the empty uh, secretariat. In 1945, the British retook um, Burma, and in 19, between 1945 and 1947, there were kind of negotiations made about the um, independence for the country. In 1947, Aung San, who is uh, the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, was the kind of de facto leader of Burma, or would be, and he had managed to broker this kind of peace between the different ethnicities that made Burma. Burma is actually a union rather than one nation of a single people. Um, he was assassinated in the Secretariat in 1947, and that kind of assassination and his moral um, right was what Aung San Suu Kyi sort of took on when she became the um, de facto leader of Burma and the leader of the National um, League of Democracy. 
1962, there was a military coup, and again, that was about keeping the peace amongst the different ethnicities to create this idea of a union of Burma. And um, in 1964, the foreigners were expelled um, from the country, and that was people who'd lived there for generations. The Secretariat was abandoned, I think it was sometime in the 70s, and this long, slow isolation of Burma began. Um, and for me, the Secretariat has an incredible emotional charge. If you look at this photo, if you look in that little kind of doorway at the center, you can see through to another building that matches this big red building here. It's quite a large site. There's buildings on the corners. Um, and they're all kind of completely falling apart. What I also think is really telling about this is you can see I've shot this photograph and there's two sets of fences. So it looks like a wound to me and the fences look like these band-aids trying to contain this terrible emotional um, past that is Burma. So that's my potted history of Burma that'll kind of hopefully orient you in what I'm about to tell you. Um, as I said, I took this photograph in 2013 and that was the first time I returned to Burma. I was born in Burma in 1962, the year of the military coup. I left in 1963 with my parents, but my maternal grandparents stayed behind. In 1964, the military government expelled foreigners, as I've mentioned, and that was the beginning of the isolation. Um, and it also was the beginning of a de facto policy of refusing former nationals' visas to return. So until the trip when I took this photograph, I had never been to Burma, even though it was country of my birth. My grandparents had stayed behind. I never met them. Um, in fact, none of my family has ever been allowed back. I was the first one to return. So why did I go? I was quite reluctant to go for a really long time. Um, but really, I was so keen to know about the place where I'd been born. Um, I wanted to know about the culture. I wanted to know about the climate. I wanted to know how people looked. All that kind of basic stuff that you associate with the land of your birth. Um, and what I found when I went, um, I went twice in 2013 for the first time, and then again in 2014 for an extended period of three months. Um, and what I found was a society in total transition. People were staggering out from beneath 50 years of an oppressive military government. And it was incredibly humbling to witness this experience, these people experiencing this. They were incredibly courageous about this new, um, this change in things. They were very disoriented. They were joyful at the prospect of um, an, a more open society. But they found the whole process very painful as well. It was something they had to really grapple with. It was a moment, I think, that will probably never be repeated. And, you know, as things have changed since um, 2012, 13, and 14, you know, Burma is changing, and we, we sort of see um, how the, pol the politics of the country are kind of becoming harder. But that moment was a moment of um, almost complete innocence. It was, frankly, something that was very humbling to witness. But <laughs> I was amazed, of course, at what was going on around me, and yet... I was also unprepared what was happening inside of me um, for what it felt like to finally walk the streets of the city of my birth. My first book is called The Monsoon Bride, and it's set in colonial Rangoon. And I had, for that book, researched the, book, uh, researched the city minutely. I researched the climate. I researched the layout of the city. I looked at these old geographic articles to see where people lived in the different parts of the city. Um, I researched social mores as, as well as I could um, memoirs, people's, um, you know, discussions of um, their parties, culture of newspapers, all these things I looked at. Um, and yet, 
I was really not prepared for the experience of being there. And I think that's because one of the remarkable things about Rangoon is that the entire colonial city is virtually intact. So you can walk around the buildings as they once were. It's decrepit, but it's still there. And so walking those streets, being in that place, I felt like I was in a kind of double reality. It was like the past and the present were unfolding before me simultaneously. The memories of my mother, my father, my grandmother, my cousins, great aunts and uncles flooded back to me. And then new memories because, you know, I was the first person back. So this prompted lots of news stories that came via email from people from all over the world. My family's kind of um, strung out all over this in Australia, Europe, and Canada. So they'd be sending emails going, oh, I remember this, and oh, I remember that. My parents would be remembering, oh, we used to live in this road, and we used to go this place for coffee, and this happened, and that happened. So all these things were coming back at, um, at me via email. And it kind of felt like... I was the recipient of five generations of my family who'd lived there, all talking to me at once. All these stories were going in my head. They felt like they were in the air around me. And it was a really kind of um, overwhelming experience. But one that I welcomed. So this is a picture of my great aunt. Um, she's the one um, third from, is that the right? Yeah. That way. <laughs> She's the one holding the big silver cup with the, the Western-style dress. And that picture is from um, after independence, but it's still part of that kind of cosmopolitan colonial Rangoon. And I really love this picture because the jockey is the tallest person. <laughs> and you kind of don't expect that, do you? So um, I, I have a very complex heritage, and one that I think is fairly typical of Rangoon of, a particular, of that time. My heritage includes Indian, Dutch, German, Scottish, and Irish predecessors, Catholics and Buddhists, Hindus and Protestants. As I walked the streets that they had walked, I realized that what I was longing for in this you know, present and past unfolding was that Rangoon of the past, a cosmopolitan city where there were German and Italian and French communities alongside Indian, Chinese, and Japanese ones, and of course the Burmese where there was and still is a synagogue and an Armenian church. The writer Morris Collis describes colonial Rangoon as paradoxical. What he means is that in a city where social hierarchies were based on race and religion, people still strayed across those boundaries, loving and marrying outside of their culture, their nationality, their religion, or in defiance of gender paradigms. So East, East Rangoon was full of these mixed-race families, and mixed-race I'm using for want of a better term. One of the problems of writing this book has been finding the right words, and I'm a writer, so, but that's fairly typical of writers. We don't know how to use the words very well. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about that at Rangoon is that there was also a well-known gay scene at the YMCA, and this was back in colonial times. Interesting. Um, this is something that came out um, while I was there. People sort of remember these whispers. So this was colonial Burma, um, and it was kind of surprising. But before I make it sound too ideal, let me also tell you that Rangoon was a heartless city. It was really built for commerce, um, that often violence erupted between these communities, that misogyny was pretty typical, but all the same, it was a place where different people met and for the most part were able to make or allowed to make a kind of place for themselves. So here I was in um, Rangoon in 2013 and one of the stories, one of these stories flying through the air that came at me stuck. 
This is the story. It was late November 1941, and my grandmother Sarah was coming home from a Christmas party on the outskirts of the city. Beside her in her Opal Roadster was an Italian musician, Mario or Carlo or Guido, we never knew the name, who'd played at the party and to whom she was giving a lift home. Suddenly, both back tires blew out. The car crashed. They were alone on an empty road in the middle of the night, the car undrivable, and the cause of the blowout was potentially menacing. They didn't really know what had caused it. And at the time, there were um, a lot of um, agitation for uh, independent Burma, so people were actually um, uh, um, performing little acts of terrorism, so they might put something on the tracks of a train or they might lay something across roads. So potentially a menacing situation. They were waiting there by the side of the road when out of the darkness emerged a man my grandmother referred to only as the Japanese photographer. He was a visible figure amongst that mixed-race, cosmopolitan layer of Rangoon, and he was known as Kay for the stamp on the back of his exquisite photos. He rescued them and took them home. The next day, when my grandmother went to his studio to thank him, he warned her to leave for India, that the Japanese were coming, and that they would win the war. It was another week before the attack on Pearl Harbor and before the Japanese actually declared war. So this was like one of those, wow, what the, what the hell was going on there? Um, and of course, I was totally intrigued by this story. I wondered, first of all, if it was even credible. I wondered why an Italian, an enemy national, was allowed to roam Rangoon freely. I wondered what he was doing in her car so late at night. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, I also wondered how the Japanese photographer knew so much. I wondered if he was maybe some sort of spy and why he was known only as K. It was that point in my first trip to Rangoon that I realized the whole experience, the stories that I was thinking um, that were coming back to me was potentially a book. Um, and this book would be the overarching story of my return and then within that, the story of Rangoon, a city and its people in moments of transition in its last days, if you like. So in, thir in 2014 and 13, the last days of a dictatorship, which was unfolding before my eyes. In 1963, with the expulsion of the for foreigners, the last day of a multicultural city as it became an isolated state. And in 1941, the last days of a cosmopolitan city before it became a city of war, where your national origin was suddenly your destiny. This would be a story about how we belong to the places we live in, it will be a story about home and what that actually means. So I came to the National Library. As um, Alex mentioned, I've been researching um, Burma and uh, the cosmopolitan um, layer of society for um, years, uh, for my first novel and for this book as well, and I'd worked in the uh, National Library of Congress in various places, but I hadn't been to the Luce Collection. And I came here for a very specific reason. I came to read the private papers um, and through the library of Gordon Hannington Luce in the hopes that I would find something to help me recreate those earlier incarnations of Rangoon. And this is one of his letters. It's really kind of interesting to look at letters, actually, because you realize that we're very, very used to our phones and our devices, um, and um, we're used to uh, autocorrect and to being able to erase things when we type them. But a lot of Luce's letters are um, first rough drafts of, of things that he had to write out later, and this is an example of that. So Luce, I'll tell you a bit more about him and the reason why I was interested in his work and his, um, his letters particularly. He was an Englishman who traveled to Burma in 1912 to work as a teacher. He spent most of his adult life in Burma, and unlike most of the British who kept to themselves, he married a local woman. Her name was T.T., and she was, you know, their union was one of those paradoxical unions that Collis so disapproved of. 
Um, she was actually a woman of note in her own right. She opened up a home for waifs and strays, and she was a woman of, of great prestige. Um, but Luce, his career was very much in education. He helped to set up and run Rangoon University. As a scholar, his life's work was documenting the ancient languages and cultures of Burma. He was a renowned expert in this area, and his library, um, housed here as one of the world's best collections, I believe, on Burmese culture, remains that. Yet despite his contribution to Burmese historical scholarship, his marriage, all the years he'd lived in Burma, he was expelled from the country, country as a foreigner in 1964. The interest in his letters for me was because he'd lived in Rangoon during the period I was anxious to recreate, particularly in 1941, pre-1941. Um, there was also a diary from his evacuation in 1942, which I thought sounded promising. And what I really hoped for was that his letters would give me a sense of the atmosphere of pre-war Rangoon, of what, about, what people thought about things privately. Um, as I mentioned, much of Burma's colonial archive was destroyed or lost during the war, and there really just isn't that much material, not in the way that I wanted to understand it. Um, and I was interested particularly in this cosmopolitan mixed-race layer, and often that group of people are so good at assimilation, at assimilation it's really difficult to find traces of them in the archive. Um, and a name on a piece of paper is often you know, not something that gives you enough information. Um, and I was really keen to find what the experience of being in Burma was like. And here's an example of what I mean. So this is another family photograph. You'll forgive me the family photographs, I hope. Um, on the left, with the V on her chest, oh no, sorry. There, on that side, <laughs> with the V is my um, grandmother. And on the very far other side, with the B, is my great aunt Beryl. And they come from the same family, and yet you probably wouldn't pick them as sisters. And that is just um, part of the whole mixed-race experience. You know, your skin is how you face the world, and your name, their name was Nasi, they sounded like Germans, um, is, is what you look like in the archive. And I was interested in that tension between what you see in the archive and what you see in the lived world and how you kind of negotiate those two things. So I came to the NLA in June and July of this year, and I read through Luce's lifetime of correspondence. And as I read, I felt an affinity with this man because he'd spent his whole life reconstructing lost languages and cultures, and I kind of felt that I am also trying to reconstruct something that was lost, something that I have lost. Um, I didn't actually find that much about Rangoon before the war, I'm afraid, but what I did find was a different way of thinking about the material of this book. And so we are talking about creative process here, and I guess this is about creative process. This is about the way you find shifts and um, the way you think about the material you're working on. So in my reading of Luce's letters, the period that moved me most was not the dramatic dash through Burma to India to escape the war, which I thought would be really exciting and dramatic, but rather his slow and painful expulsion in 1964. Luce was in his 70s. His wife was facing leaving the country of her birth and the home of waifs and strays that she'd built up. They had to fight for his pension to be paid to him, and that was his only source of income, and he had to fight to take his savings with him. So this letter here is um, to, I believe, is it, uh, this is, I think it's to the Foreign Office, and there was lots of correspondence about him trying to kind of get them um, to put pressure on the Burmese government to pay his pension. Um, the other thing that was particularly sad is that Luce had to leave his library behind. So Harold White might have been over in 1963 hoping to buy it, but Luce held on to it. It was really important to him. 1964, he had to leave it. He had to leave it. Here's his library. 
Ooh, no, that's another, sorry, that's his letter to the Foreign Office. So there's, this is another example of the kind of correspondence. There's a lot of it in, in terms of him trying to kind of retain what was his. Here is his library. So Luce's library was of great personal significance. Um, and this is the library I used while I was there. And I have to tell you, this slide just gives you a, one corner of it. And the amazing thing about the library is that you can smell it several shelves before you get to it. It's actually a lovely thing. I mean, I'm never going to give up books, frankly, because they just are such an amazing, sensual pleasure. And you know what it smells like? It smells like heat on paper. You can smell that. It's just amazing. And it's so exciting. Um, so this was actually the second library that Luce built up. Um, and that was dedicated to Burma and her ancient cultures. His first collection was lost during the Japanese occupation, and that was a very comprehensive collection put together when he was, you know, at the height of his creative, um, his academic powers as a young man. It contained extensive word lists that he'd gathered, all these drawings, and that was lost. Um, he spent years trying to reclaim that collection, too, through the UN. So it was a huge blow when the Burmese authorities would not allow him to take his library with them. They wanted to retain it because they felt it was of, of cultural significance to the country. And this whole kind of tension between leaving something behind and taking with, with you made me think really deeply about what it actually means to leave a place, to split yourself off. And I realized that even though I am the daughter of migrants and that we left during the coup un under extremely dramatic circumstances, and although I've lived in Canada and in England and Australia, and although I was terribly moved when I returned to Rangoon, I really didn't understand what it meant to leave a place under duress. In my own, in my own family, this is a part of our story that we don't really talk about. We arrived in Canada late in 1963. My brother Peter was born in 64, my sister Pam in 66, my brother George in 73. And the moment of leaving, my parents leaving with me, is mostly buried in that tumult of early family life. That's our kind of history. Besides, when we do tell the stories, when we do revisit them, um, the stories around the coup are, are extreme. They're often violent, and they're traumatic for my parents to relive even now. And I think that trauma is not just about the violence. It's also about leaving something that was important to them, that kind of defined them. Um, it does kind of set you apart, that sort of back, background um, of, you know, that violent sort of history. And I guess it's something that, you know, people tell the stories over and over again, and you never really fully get to the bottom of them. What I had, though, in Luce's letters was the documentation of leaving from the never-ending administration. So the different forms he had to fill in, the different letters, often in triplicate, had to, he had to send to different departments, the f you know, practice letters, the rough drafts, the final drafts, all of that. I had that. Um, I had the sad letters of commiseration when people found out he had to leave. I had the sad letters of commiseration when people discovered that Titi had had a breakdown, on, an emotional breakdown en route between Burma and England. And this changed the way I thought about the story that I was going to tell, both structurally and emotionally. Here's an example of, a very technical example of something that I used really um, in the work that I'm about to read to you. Um, this is a letter of termination, Luce's termination from the University of Rangoon. I'm sorry, you probably can't read it that um, clearly, but it's extremely formal in the way it's set out, and it says, this is the date, and this is the day you're leaving, and this is the time you're leaving, um, and 
this kind of form of letter, I thought, was kind of really, really interesting because we just don't get letters like that anymore. Um, and it sort of made me think about how I was going to set up and dramatize and fictionalize the moment when we left. So this is a bit of writing I did um, at, as a result of some of the reading I did in the Loose Collection. The idea comes to him with the letters. One is from the Burma Oil Company, the word confidential stamped on the front the other from the people's oil, the new name chosen by the Revolutionary Council. Side by side they arrive, presented on the silver tray the houseboy uses for the post, except these didn't come by post. They were delivered by hand, timed to arrive at breakfast, a little piece of private theater. Very well, then. He pushes away his eggs and slices through one envelope and then the next before smoothing both letters onto the table in front of him. Beneath the table, Mao, the dog, shifts in his sleep. The dog rolls heavily across his feet, pinning them to the floor. On the left, in English, Rangoon, 7 Jan, 1963. In accordance with letter number 68, dated 1st of January, 1963, from the People's Oil Industry of the Revolutionary Government of the Union of Burma, Mr. is released from the service of the Burma Oil Company with effect from the morning of 19th of April, 1963. 63. Sir Thickle, Chairman, BOC. On the right, in Burmese, Rangoon, 7th of January, 1963. In accordance with the letter dated, uh, the letter number 68, dated 1st of January, 1963, from the People's Oil Industry of the Revolutionary Government of the Union of Burma, Mr. is appointed to the service of the People's Oil Industry of the Revolutionary Government with effect from the afternoon of 19th of April, 1963, signed Brigadier, Chairman, People's Oil Industry. Attached to each letter is a form which he is required to sign, one to accept his termination and the other to accept the new appointment. There are envelopes too, and this he recognizes as part of the performance. Sign the form, fold it up, put it into its envelope, seal the flap, agree, comply, obey. And if you do, then all coups will be bloodless, all transitions seamless. He picks up the pen the boy has thoughtfully placed on the salver. How is the boy known to do this? And pulls off the cap. It's not as if he hadn't expected this. The oral business will, be, will benefit from the close attention from the Revolutionary Council. That was the latest official line announced a few months earlier. Those professional soldiers are keen to make the country work. They are keen to take what is rightfully theirs, to end the continued humiliation of foreign influence. They will keep men like him, the old guard, close for the handover and train up the new pure Burmese executives and army officers who will naturally take those roles. And then, when he is no longer needed? He has already been in to sand out his superior, a blandly imperturbable Englishman, about a posting elsewhere in the world with the BOC. Well, I suppose we could get you something somewhere. Somewhere, meaning unpleasant, hot and remote, given grudgingly if, given, if it were even given at all. He suspects his superior of a secret admiration for those army officers, their effectiveness, the way they know who and what they are. Well, who would want to live in England anyway? Gray skies, gray buildings, reviled every day for the color of your skin? So he signs the first form. I accept my termination from the Burma Oil Company. He pulls the second chit towards him. A sharp and sudden cry from the floor above, an acid fury that cuts swift and deep, so deep his hand jumps. 
his infant daughter, and now he has splattered ink across the paper. He drops the pen onto the tray, pulls his feet from under the dog before pushing his chair away from the table, stands, walks to the teak sideboard, leans onto it, palms flat against the wood. He remains there for a long time, long enough for Mao to rouse himself from under the table, pad over and plant a tawny snout against his thigh. If you had asked him how he felt in those first months after the coup, he would say it was the fear that was new, that it was like static on the radio, both familiar and ordinary, part of the background to life. You grew used to it, perhaps irritated, but only a little. And then some event, some small thing, a shift in the air perhaps, and the doll would suddenly tune in, sound welling up loudly, crashing over you, your ears buzzing, reminding you that all along you had been afraid, that you continued to be afraid, and that was the reason why your body suddenly jolted, why you gulped at the air, why the blood suddenly drained away, leaving you shivering. In those first few days after the, coup, the, after the coup, his aunt marveled that she'd only known something had happened when the announcement came over the radio. No gunfire, no explosions. Imagine, she giggled, and the laughter was a giddy apology because it had sounded as if she was asking for gunfire, for explosions, for blood. A bloodless coup. But soon enough, there had been blood. He reaches for the cigarette tin, twists off the top. There's that sweet earth smell of tobacco. He shakes his cigarette loose and lights it. Then turning to lean against the teak again, draws back hard to fill his lungs before expelling a long gray plume. At his feet, Mao the dog wags his ginger tail. So that's just a very brief excerpt, but you'll notice there's real similarities to the letter that um, Luce received. There's that decision between the two, um, that um, stipulation of the moment of termination. You'll also notice that I've thought about what it is difficult to leave behind. And my father, who this is about, and me, I'm the infant crying up there. My, dog, my father had this dog he called Mao. It was a uh, Chinese Tao dog. And he named it Mao after Mao Zedong. He thought it was a hilarious political joke. But he loved that dog, and he still talks about it. And I thought, oh, my God, that was one of the things you had to leave behind. And that kind of leaving of pet, you know, was some way of kind of building it up, the dilemma of... Um, what it means to actually leave a place. And so in the reading of the Letters of Luce and this thinking about what it means to actually leave under duress, I thought of it as a kind of a series of dilemmas, st dilemmas stay or go, take something with you. What do you have to leave blind, behind? And this is very much based on Luce's experience of having to leave his library behind. So earlier I mentioned um, the Japanese photographer um, and the Italian musician who were in that late night crash. And I wanted to kind of, just in the last few minutes of this talk, um, detail a little bit about the research that I've done there, because this um, brings in another collection in the um, National Library, which we didn't mention, but which was really great fun to have a look at, and that's the Harold S. Williams. And Harold S. Williams was, mm, what would you say, I guess a hoarder? <laughs> There's boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff, and they're all these bits and pieces um, that he gathered together while he was living in Japan as, an, as what is called an expat. So when I was in Burma in 2014, I wanted to find this Japanese photographer and this um, Italian musician who'd been in the car in this car crash with my grandmother. And um, I wanted, to, first of all, to know if the story was actually true um, or just some massive um, family tall tale. And I wanted to know why people who were, in effect, enemy nationals were allowed to roam through the city. 
So I went to the National Archives of Myanmar, and um, they house the remaining colonial records. And I would add that um, the archivist there was trained here in Canberra, and he remembers um, Canberra fondly. But what I did was I went there, I found the colonial records, and I almost immediately found this guy called Mario de Giorgio. And he was a musician in the car with my grandmother, so the story was actually true. And his name, his occupation, all of that kind of fit with the time. And the reason he was allowed to roam Rangoon was because he'd taken out British subjectivity. In fact, there were pages of people, and this again, you know, proved this whole um, idea of this cosmopolitan Rangoon, which had been felt like a family story and not much more. But here were pages of Germans, French, Italians, Armenians, all in a rush to become British protected um, subjects in that period between 1939 and 1942. I looked for Kay, the Japanese photographer as well, and I found a list of the Japanese residents in Rangoon compiled by the authorities. They've been keeping an eye on this community and their activities since 1936. Um, so every few years there's this compiled list. There are also surveillance records of the Japanese and their activity through Burma and Thailand. In this list of Japanese residents, I found nine photographers who lived in Rangoon, none of whom kind of fit K. I had so little to go on. Any one of them could be them, could have been them. So I fast forward to my fellowship here in July, and I looked into the Harold S. Williams collection, hoping that maybe he had a lot of photographs, he had a lot of postcards, and I thought, well, maybe I'll find something with a K on the back. Um, and I kind of got a sense of photography and what it meant to people. I also got in touch with various academics and curators around the world, world include, including Gail Newton, who was the curator here at the National um, Gallery, I believe, for photography, and also uh, an art historian called Luke Gartland, um, who specializes in Japanese um, photographs and the history of them. And I was very, my heart was absolutely gladdened when Luke Garton wrote to me, you are in uncharted territory. Nobody knows about these guys. And that's like, it makes you really happy as a researcher, doesn't it? When you kind of find, whoa, nobody's here. Yeah, just me. Um, but I didn't find the Japanese photographer. I also found on the internet um, these colonial photographs that had been taken by a Japanese photographer who was currently living in um, Rangoon or had, he had access to them somehow. And so I emailed him. This was while I was here doing my fellowship. And he replied, we corresponded, and then he sent me this. And this is the meeting of the Rangoon Japanese Photographers Association. I know. It's like, whoa. And if you look really closely, they're all absolutely parallelically drunk. <laughs> so they had a really great time. I don't know um, if Kay is one of these people. Um, maybe he took the photo. To be honest, I, you know, Kay could be for Kodak or Konica. It could be the something on the back of the page. Who knows? But I think the thing about this is that um, finding Kay is an ongoing, unfolding story. It's part of the story of the book, the finding of him, but also imagining that community. And reading through Luce's letters, because they're written moment by moment without any of the judgment I, that comes with hindsight and the kind of the passing of history, um, what emerges for me now, post-fellowship, is an idea of a community that is perhaps delicately, delicately balanced between the country they've chosen to live in, this is Burma, and Rangoon, the city, and the nation that they come from. So I think that maybe the Japanese photographer wasn't a spy, and I think it's really interesting that my first um, instinct was, oh, it's a spy story, it's you know, about the war. I think that maybe he was just somebody perhaps quite ordinary, who maybe listened to the Japanese language radio, got his information that way, and you know, was helpful to people because he was part of a community. He was maybe a, considered himself a community leader. Mario, too, I think, 
is really interesting from this perspective. He was an Italian national on paper, but when I dug a bit further, I discovered he was actually born in Trieste, and he was born as a Serb, and Italy, um, um, Trieste was ceded to Italy after World War I, and he never identified as an Italian. Um, in fact, he left, when he was quite young, he left Trieste as a ship's musician on a cruise liner and came um, to Burma as his port of call. So this brings me virtually to the end of my talk, which is timed perfectly for 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and my final observation about the way that this fellowship has helped me develop my project and to really think um, differently about the writing that I've been doing, the, the creative process of um, working out what my material means. And this kind of also brings me back to this idea of the title, Love, Loss, and the Last Days of Rangoon. And we're back at the Secretariat. So as a writer, the things that I look for in my practice are where there is resistance, my resistance to things. Um, the things that make me super uncomfortable are often the places I need to go, the places I need to kind of find out more and think about you know, what that material is telling me and perhaps how I should dramatize it. Um, I also look for the things that shift um, for changes in form or changes in subject. Um, and I think one of the lasting shifts from this fellowship has been about my idea of what I'm actually writing about, the emotion I'm writing about. When I started this talk, I talked about how I felt I'd lost something, I'd felt I'd lost home. But as I read through Luce's letters, as I worked on my um, manuscript, as I thought about the people that I'd found in the archive, the people that I dramatized, my own family, I realized that loss is actually often an echo of love. You really don't lose something unless you have some affiliation or some kind of connection or some sort of love for it in the first place. And I realized also that the idea of home, this thing that I wanted to write about, is often a negotiation between love and loss. It's about the transition between loss and love and back again. And I think those are the negotiations that um, allow us to belong to a particular place and a particular time. And that is my experience of working with Luce. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, look, thanks um, so much, Michelle. It's it's a rare privilege indeed to really, um, to for me to find out the kind of the essence of, of, of a writer's creative process, and it's it, it's uh, an extra extra satisfying experience as a collection manager here at the library to know that. Um, what might look like a couple of letters in a box can really kind of um, make someone react in such a creative and, and, and wonderful way. And so thanks for sharing that writing with us. Look, we do have some opportunities for questions now for Michelle, if you like. Yes, Thank you. 
Okay, well, um, I, know, I don't think I know about him, but unless he wrote something about the loose collection, um, but I don't really know about him. No, okay, then I don't know about him, so thank you very much. I might write his name down after the talk, uh, after, every, um, after we finished here. Um, I can tell you a little bit about Yangon University Library because I did actually get to research there while I was there in 2014. Um, it's also very well kept, um, and there's a zillion librarians, and you can kind of go in there and they'll bring you your books, but I think the problem with any um, library in a tropical country is that there is a rapid a deterioration of the material, and it's difficult to keep it intact. So I looked at a very rare um, uh, vernacular um, newspaper, but in English, though not vernacular, but published by Burmese. Um, and it was from 1938, and it was slowly disintegrating, but it was in this great big bound leather book. So that still exists. The Yangon Library is still there. It's still well-staffed. Um, there's still a card catalog as well, um, which I love. I'm like, I love the card catalog. It's so easy, right? Um, and it's still going, but I think, you know, like many of the educational, educational institutions in Burma, it's sort of struggling to find funding and to find staff and to kind of keep turning over, but it's, it's there. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite... Right. I think it's quite interesting, you know, a lot of people in Burma will find, have found ways to kind of keep up with their um, particular set of skills. Yeah, but they're, you know, it's, it's so very ad hoc, it's not like the government sort of sets anything up for people. But, you know, thanks for that, it's great. Thank you very much, Michelle. Yes. Well, um, not all of them, no. <laughs> so um, mainly I've been looking at my immediate family, and I did interview my parents um, earlier this year, and uh, they're excited by it. <laughs> and um, I actually filled out an ethics application for that, actually, because it's, it's quite a big thing to do. Um, and I was surprised by my parents' reaction. So yes, a lot of the stories are traumatic, but... Um, they were quite keen for it to happen, and they were surprised that I was so interested. And really, I think my interest is partly because suddenly it was possible to go to Burma. And, you know, I'm in, I I wrote an entire book about colonial Burma, so I guess, you know, I'm a little bit obsessed about that past. Um, I have a cousin who... So a lot of the family are older who, who live there, and a lot of them are, are dying off. I think I have one aunt in who's um, just turned 90 on the weekend, and she lives in Western Australia. And I have a cousin in Paris, and he actually did go back in the 80s. He was working with a big multinational, I think it was Schlumberger, and because he was negotiating some big contract, they allowed him a visa to come back, you know. And he tells a story about arriving at the airport and being handed a book, and they say, here's your favorite copy, your favorite book. It's a copy of Dostoevsky, and inside was a note about not seeing anything in the hotel room because it was going to be bugged, and it's like real kind of, you know, spy stuff. But... Um, he, he went to the old houses and he found, he went at, to the Strand Hotel and, um, you know, he's also quite keen for this, this sort of history to, to kind of come out. He's a bit of a budding novelist himself. So there's encouragement from those who know. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, it is a very personal story and um, 
and yet it's a very universal story, that whole kind of loss of home and, you know, how you kind of construct yourself. And I think it's quite an Australian and Canadian one too. You know, we're, we're countries of migrants. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, gee, I, I probably can't answer that question. But you know there's um, uh, Youth and Mint's um, organization, which is uh, about the heritage of the colonial heritage of Yangon. And that's sort of, um, uh, there's, they've got an office uh, right on um, Sule Pagoda Road near the river. So there's attentions being paid. But, you know, I went first in 2013, I went 2014. And then in 2016 when I went, there was this massive shopping mall um, and things are being built over all the time, you know. So I, I don't know what's going to happen to that heritage. I think people um, locally still don't recognize it as um, an asset, which it is potentially. Um, and I think that, you know, the idea is that you should have, like, the big classic skyscraper skylines like you get in other Asian cities. So it's hard to know, but, you know, it is worth seeing. It's just amazing to walk through those buildings. It just feels like you know, you, you kind of squint your eyes a bit and you could be in the past, you know. And it's, it's um, really equally fascinating to see the different styles of architecture and see who built them because often there's the names of people on the buildings. Yeah, I, it's really cool. And your um, book of postcards, what, is that um, something that is in this collection here? No, it was in a county archive in Britain. Oh, right. Wow. I know. It is. It's absolutely vanishing. And it's such a fascinating world. And it's so, you know, in many ways familiar, like that gay scene at the YMCA. Like, who knew? But that was kind of going on. Um, and the, I think the other thing that's um, really interesting um, is that whole culture of the postcard, actually. Because one of the Harold S. Williams um, bits that was particularly fascinating was all these different postcards that people collected. And as you say, this entree into this completely different world. Hmm. Oh, oh, yes, one more. Good. So that, sorry, I didn't hear... Oh, really? Yeah. I know.
It's, it's, yeah, it's sort of, if you were going to be an information gatherer, then being a photographer would be a huge asset, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the residence is particularly interesting, though, because you see generations of people, and, you know, there was this massive migration out of Japan through Southeast Asia all over at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, 20th century. You know, there was like a in the, um, the red light district of Rangoon, there were, there were specialties, and one of the specialty houses were, were areas was Japanese prostitutes. So I think, you know, it's really difficult to know from this perspective what you're looking at, what kind of community, and what the intentions of the community were when they first get there, and, you know, what they become coerced into, or what they kind of feel they need to do afterwards. And I think, you know, that, for me, is also part of that um, that moment, you know, that transition between, you know, being a citizen of Rangoon and then suddenly being a Japanese citizen of Rangoon. Hmm. But thanks for that. That was really kind of interesting. I might write that down. There's a new chapter of your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just before I let you go into what looks like it's turning into being a terrible evening in Canberra, I can see heavy rain coming down outside. Um, just before we go, again, a, a really great reflection on, on Michelle's work here. We, we spend a lot of time trying to build our collections so that they suit the needs of advanced researchers and academics in our universities, and it's, it's really wonderful to see that our, our collection is used for creative endeavours as well. And um, we are just about to look at the next... to assess the next round of creative, creative fellowship applications, and I think we've got a, quite a few dozen, haven't we, Margie? that thankfully I don't have to read um, before the assessment date. Um, now, before I let you go, I do need to let you know that our, the good news is our next fellows presentation is as soon as next week with Dr Sue Chen and her topic is Enlightening the Child, Chinese Children's Literature at the Crossroads, 1875 to 1919. So that's next Thursday evening and um, we'll try and make sure it doesn't rain for that one. So thanks again for coming along this evening and please join me in thanking Michelle Ongthing again. <laughs> <laughs>